everyone, and welcome back to this exclusive season of FinTech for the People. I'm Ami Parbu, Managing Partner of Axion Venture Lab, and I'm excited to continue sharing more stories behind the work we do and the people who are driving truly inclusive fintech innovation in every corner of the world. As an early stage investor in fintech startups, Axion Venture Lab has spent the last decade investing in over 60 companies across Africa, Latin America, Asia, and the U.S. And we believe in the power of fintech to reach those who have been left behind. In this special season, we are sharing four discussions that happened during our Fintech for Inclusion Global Summit. The summit brought together over 250 people in the inclusive fintech space, and the conversations were incredibly valuable. We wanted to share some of those with the broader fintech for the people community. In this episode, we're sharing a panel discussion on an important topic, tech and touch particularly how CEOs and other practitioners have balanced the two when supporting the financially excluded during the pandemic. We know one of the challenges in financial inclusion is the need to build trusted relationships with customers beyond just the digital realm. The pandemic placed significant strain on accomplishing this, and we're lucky to hear from some seasoned CEOs on their experiences and learnings. Thank you to my colleague Pratik Srivastava, VP of Global Operations at Axion for moderating, and thanks to the panelists, Sofiat Abdul-Razak of Goodfind, Fernando Sucre of R5, Neeraj Bansal of CredRight, as well as Javier Faz of CGAP for the conversation. Thank you for joining us for the session. We're talking about tech and touch and uh, the impact we're trying to create. How does that get sort of moved or lost the more tech you go? There's all sorts of challenges around the, what's called broadly the digital divide. People have devices, things are getting cheaper. Smartphones are getting ever cheaper. Access to data is close to zero in some places. I know when you look at a country like India, you have Reliance that is basically, you know, offering data for free. I was I was in Ethiopia a few a few months ago, and I was happy to pay one dollar for a week of five G data. It was ridiculous. I go for my hotspot and the rest of it. So it's getting cheaper, more accessible, but people are are they getting left behind? So this is the conversation today and the different perspectives of getting tech and touch balanced in the right way. Quickly, my name is Pratik Srivastava. I am from Axion. Uh, I help co-lead the advisory practice with Axion. Finally, the relevance to this topic for myself is also on the MasterCard partnership globally, and we've just finished a program, uh, actually next month, where we've impacted the lives of 11.5 million people through digital transformation, of which 4.5 million people are using tools, digital tools we helped create over the past four years on a regular basis. So tech and touch is extreme, but we're doing it through banks, mainly, less the fintech side in my universe. But with that, I'd like to pass, just maybe you can go this way, quick introduction to yourself, sir, and uh, as we discussed. Sure. So my name is Fernando Sucre. I'm the CEO and founder of R5. We're based in Colombia. Our mission is to save vehicle owners money and pain, and we do that by offering insurance and loans and ancillary services around the vehicle. Hi, I am Neeraj Bansal. I'm based of India. We run a company called CredRide. We provide loan to micro-businesses, largely in Tier 3, Tier 4, or the remote places in India. We use a lot of ROSCA data as alternate data to figure out the credit assessment in gap of other data available. I'm Sophia Abdurazak, CEO and founder of GoodFind. We are a business in a box for mobile businesses. So businesses without a permanent fixed location. And we do that via your mobile phone. Uh, and I'm happy to be here. Hi, everyone. My name is Javier Fass. I am part of CGAP. 
CGAP is an organization it's a, that is based in the World Bank, but we focus on advancing financial inclusion globally. The way we work is we partner with providers, with fintechs, with organizations that are using technology to advance the frontier of financial inclusion. We test things on the ground, we document lessons, and we try to create, to share global knowledge, to inform investors, to inform public policy, and to inform providers. Thanks for that. I think uh, just quickly before, well, I'd love to in- invite Javier in a minute to talk about the global view. But through the pandemic, there's been a much bigger shift to digital. During the pandemic itself, uh, we saw spikes of adoption you know, going through the roof as lockdowns happened. But there's also a you know, post, are we post-pandemic? I'm not sure. Uh, we have maybe, you know, we're in the post-mindset of pandemic, let's put it this way, and then we're moving on. But there's regression to cash in many places. The behaviors haven't stuck as much. The Findex data talks about that as well. But with that, maybe Javier, could you, you know, share from your sort of vantage point, how do you see the universe from a tech and touch point of view? Sure. When we look across innovations and businesses working with MSEs and with individuals trying to offer financial services, we see like two groups. On the one hand, there's innovations or innovators who are trying to sell new products and services. And on the other hand, we have organizations who are trying to leverage something that needs to be digitized because once it's digitized, then there's access to more financial services. So selling new products and new services, there's a huge effort that is needed to convey what is the value proposition, why somebody needs something, and that doesn't happen automatically over digital channels. What we're seeing is there's a lot of investment that needs to happen and needs to be borne by the innovators, mostly fintechs, to really get people to understand, to create to build trust, et cetera. And then in the other cases where there's already some digitization happening, there's also equally some investment needed handholding for people to understand how to use something and, and how to take advantage of a financial service that comes to them in a digital form. So no matter which angle you come to it, very few, uh, in most cases, there's a, an investment that needs to be done to create that handholding to onboard customers to digital services. And quickly, as you see the platforms rise and the rest of it, do you see a little bit of uh, a shift away in one direction or the other from the CGAP point of view? Not really. Even in platforms where, you know, ride-hailing platforms, gig platforms, e-commerce, where there's a core business happening outside of the financial service and you're trying to layer a financial service on top of an existing digital relationship, even then, uh, people don't take up directly without some effort to handhold, show, onboard Absolutely. the customer. Thanks for that. Sophie, from your point of view, can you just describe a typical client of yours and how do you serve them? Tell us more about that. Yeah, absolutely. So we serve largely the food truck industry um, because they are, you know, have our biggest pain point. So definitely no permanent fixed location. They are largely black, brown, or immigrant women. About 70 to 80 percent. So that's also reflective of our customer base at Goodfine. 80 percent of our customers are in those four categories. And they usually have four major pain points that, that we've seen. One, they're just as complex as their brick and mortar counterparts, but they do so with usually sole proprietorship. So they try to manage their business on several different splintered platforms, but they don't have the 
the resources or the staff to be able to manage that complex of a business. They suffer from lower margins, as is typical in the restaurant industry. You go for volume, underbank and underserved as well. And then not being able to like park at something that's going to be high yielding. And so what we do is service two and a half of those pain points, but are on a mission to solve all four by giving them a business in a box that gives them a full payment stack, as well as lead generation. And we help them manage their entire business operations all in one single login so that they can focus on what makes them money, which is like front of the house, serving customers, creating great products. And we found that the only way to service this industry well is to do so comprehensively. And which parts of the world are you in? We are based in the U.S. We were in four states two months ago, and now we're in 15 states. So, Fantastic. Yeah. Some of the best food in the world is out of those food trucks. Fernando, just jumping to you, could you just talk through about your clients and how do you help them move from simple to complex products? And, you know, the balance of tech and touch a little bit, but just describe your business first. We'll get into the meat in a minute. So, sure. So, we, I mean, we do insurance and loans to, for vehicle owners, cars and motorcycles. So, to explain, I'll give you the, the two extremes, right? Mm-hmm. On, the, on the simple side, we have motorcycle owners usually a very, very cheap, very small motorcycle. And they come to us to buy the basic insurance that you need by law. And we created this super, super simple process, literally two inputs, three clicks, and you, you can purchase in five minutes. And we do that by getting a lot of data and basically correlating data and underwriting with that data. And the, the interesting part is that when we started, we said, no phone. Mm-hmm. Like, you cannot phone anybody. And it worked because then we were forced to design and tweak and tweak until it was simple enough. On the other extreme, we have some used car owners or they're typically self-employed independent workers. And these people are trying to buy a car, sell their car, buy a car. And initially, we're like, well, we just do what banks do and make it digital. And that wasn't enough. We, we had to figure out what is involved in that transaction between two people who want to buy and sell a car. And there's government uh, forms, there's registrations you need to do, there's an inspection of the car. And then there's the moment where everything's kind of done and you're about to pay the money, but you need to wait five days until the government transfers the the vehicle from one to the other. And you're like, do I give you the car keys? So we act as an escrow agent for that transaction. And where are you based this operation? All around Colombia. Neeraj, could you talk a little bit more about the, the universe credit right sort of serves and talk a bit more about the business and how you help them? You know, India is credit stopped, as, as most of the emerging economies are. The challenge lies more as you go in the remote parts of India. You know, tier three, tier four towns, towns with a population of less than five lakhs or 500,000 people. Most of them have never transacted digitally. They have not grown with cell phones. Forget smartphones. Though now they do have that smartphone and as you know, Pratik was saying, the data cost has come down. So they do own a smartphone but don't know how to use it. So largely, if you see their uh, daily transactions, 80-85% of the business would be in cash. Now, for this customer to access a financial product is very difficult because there's no data, no financial history, not even a bureau presence. So what we do is we reach out to these customers and we understand how they have been transacting financially earlier. Majority of them are investing in Roscas. Or rather, Rosca is the go-to tool to available any financial product. Could you explain Rosca for those people who don't follow? Sure. So, so Rosca is a group saving versus lending tool. It's like a P2P tool, but the risk is managed by the platform itself, not the 
customers are the savers. People pull in, the person who wants to borrow has to bid, so they actually get lesser money than what they have pulled in. So it becomes a borrowing product. People who are saving, they actually get the discount, which the people actually ended up bidding in, so they actually end up saving. So it's a saving plus borrowing tool. Most of the small businesses go there to borrow. So what we do is we reach out to the small businesses who have been borrowing from Roscas. They also have left some data trail while investing in Roscas. So we reach out to those Rosca companies as well, partner with them and get that data on the small businesses. And then using that, build a credit tool or credit profile of the customer and then lend it to them. Understood. And it's a big market, right? There are roughly around 500,000 small businesses who are on the Rosca platform. So if you can actually get data on them, suddenly from data poor, they all become data rich. Fantastic. Moving to Javier quickly, going back to, pull you back to the platform conversation. The rise of platforms, you know, and platform not, you know, yes, you've got the massive platforms, uh, of course, but even the fintechs, if you like, are moving to that double-sided approach. Do you feel that from the CGAP point of view, have you seen people getting left behind as more tech happens? Because there's this cost-benefit trade-off, right? So the more touch you have, the more expensive it gets. Your feet on street, I heard in another panel, uh, shoe leather. I like that expression, <laughs> right? Knocking on doors, things like that. So the tendency is to go more tech. But how, tell us more about what are your perspectives <clears throat> on leaving people behind. So we started working with platforms about two or three years ago because we saw a big opportunity. The, the fact that people who work in platforms are leaving a trail on their income and the digital relationship is already there. We just thought that it's got to be, there's no question, there's financial services, this is the best channel to incorporate financial services for people who engage in platform work, ride-hailing, e-sellers, deliveries, and so on. So we started working with Karma Life and Swiggy in India with Britam, uh, who is an insurer and little cap company in Kenya, and the Safe Boda in Uganda. And we're trying to develop the right kind of products, products that make sense to the workers to be delivered through the platforms. And what we've found is that there's two things that make it very, very challenging. One is that for these products to be meaningful, they are more complex. They have a lot more features, right? It's not a savings account. It's a savings account, but there it has three modalities. You can earn interest, but then it's not liquid or you can save more, it's liquid, but then you, you can get an insurance uh, associated, life insurance associated to the balance and so on. Or the credit, it's the terms, it's the conditions for payment, it's the auto-deducted, not auto-deductive. So the products tend to be a lot more tailored, but more complex. And those required a lot more effort to communicate and to sell. It also requires an interface that is a lot more smooth, right? You need to be able to flow between screens, go back to the previews, be very clear on the content. So there's a lot of investment in the front end, but still interfaces are very clunky. So in the end, a lot of the efforts, it's still very complicated to get customer onboarding and customer usage. So those two things are still an issue because of those, of those uh, challenges. And what was the recommendation from CGAP when you did this work? What did you see that could help the well, platforms do more, help people well, not be left behind? Well, this is, this is uh, an ex experimentation, right? We're trying to push the boundaries as, in terms of better products that are more impactful on the customer. And this is what we're learning. Now, so the question is, 
you know, how do you overcome these challenges? And there are some things that are being done to, you know, to incorporate more online help. And there's messaging apps, WhatsApp that is going uh, being incorporated in the app so that there's more digital support. There's other ways in which they're addressing this, for instance, trying to leverage physical interactions to onboard them at that moment and so on. Uh, very interesting. Sophie, moving to building on that, you have 15 states you're in. Which, yeah. How many languages do you serve through your platform? Do you offer English, Spanish, and? Um, English, and we are rolling out Spanish, and that's it right now. Uh, which is good, but yeah. when you talk about 80% being you know, from different parts of the world, yeah. uh, I guess mainly Spanish should sort of touch most of it, but who knows? Sp Spanish touches a, a high portion of it for sure, right? I think outside of English, Spanish is probably the second most um, spoken language in the U.S., but our platform is also heavily immigrant-based. So, you know, like Russian populations, German populations, things like that. I um, mean, we want to be able to support everyone in their language, um, specifically when we're talking about like tech and touch, right? The more you can speak to people in their language, the easier it is to have, from a business perspective, less touch. Uh, because they understand more. It makes the onboarding process easier. And as a platform myself, we have <laughs> you know, like 15 features. And so, you know, the, the the more that we can speak in native language online, the the better for, for the company. So we're, we're definitely, you know, monitoring how many of what population is on the platform and rolling out different languages based on that. So just, just quickly staying with you, when you think about tech and touch yeah. and financial services, uh, more tech you go, the more trust is required. So Absolutely. when you're dealing with the communities you're dealing with, how do you help them build trust in what you have to offer? I mean, well, one, we, we really focus on building a community with Good Find. And I think that's, that's essential to trust. Like if you, the more people that you onboard and that will represent your company well, and, and to the, any extent of building a, a company, I do believe fostering community where your clients can talk to each other can be powerful. We do that in order to ensure that it's we have goodwill within the community itself, right? So we really focus heavily on having a, a good reputation. A part of that means like all of our end-to-end users receive personal attention in the onboarding process so that we can we can gain that trust. And then we build all of our products based off of their personal recommendations in aggregate. So we are always releasing value add. And we release weekly, which is kind of insane. And, and sometimes my co-founder pushes back. But but right now, weekly is is what we're doing. Uh, that's rapid sprinting for sure. Rapid sprinting, <laughs> for sure. Yeah. Excellent. Uh, moving to Neeraj, I mean, building on what you said, how do you, how do you help customers or your customers actually feel comfortable and not resist a weekly sprint, perhaps. <laughs> Maybe not. Uh, in your case, you know, uh, you're bringing people along your product, your customer journey. Are you dragging them along? How, I mean, are you helping them come along the journey? How do you make sure they're not resistant to these changes that you have to bring to keep expanding your platforms across India? Sure. No, so when we were building this company, we knew that we are taking customers who are used to avail financial products completely physically, right? Uh, actually go to the branches of those Roscas and deal with money, right? deal with hard cash. So we knew that if we just thrust and push the tech, there would be resistance, right? And so what we did was we thought of this as a continuum, as a spectrum, and we thought that will make it not tech or touch, but tech and touch. 
So what we realized was if you assist the customer in the same language with the same community, there's significantly more trust which can be built. Right? And we know that this customer who's coming to us is not coming only for one transaction, but we're acquiring them for life, hopefully. And that's why we can help them actually evolve in their own journey of tech. As I said, these customers had not grown up with a cell phone. Right? So what we do is we first try and hire locally, bring those sales guys which can actually go to the customer, help them understand the product, also help them understand what's better if they move to the formal financial world, what kind of opportunities open up for them. And that we see really helps us build the trust with the customer, the customer to understand our product and actually take it. At the same time, what we've also done is if the customer has joined the bandwagon, the next loan which goes or the top-up loan which goes is largely digital because now the customer is used to it, right? So they're getting monthly updates. They can see the uh, you know, loan statements. So they're getting habituated to our product. And once they have done that, second product is 80% self-done. So we also help the customer actually become more familiar with the app. And do you provide hands-on training? Back to Javier's point earlier, you know, how do you help them after the just the first, second cycle? They are mainly digital, or so. What did you do in the first between the first and second cycles to help them? Sure. So two or three things which we heavily focus on. One, we try and create champions out of our customers. So in every location where we are lending, we at least try and find five to ten customers. And, you know, make some good videos about them and propagate that. The customers themselves like it. They become our early champions, but they also become a local hero, you know, and, and that they like. Obviously, who doesn't? So, so that we focus on. The second thing is, you know, we have done bite-sized videos of each of our process. So even for the customer to, you know, once, even after taking a loan, for the customer to understand how to go and access the loan statement, how to see when I have to make a payment, all of them have a bite-sized videos. So customer can just go learn by themselves. Again, uh, we do have to nudge the customers to see that those videos are available, to see how they can use it. So what we have done is, you know, we have created a five-star rating. And now if a customer comes, watches the video once, we give them one star. As many videos they look, you know, we keep them getting the ratings high. So a little bit of gamification also helps. That's fantastic. Uh, Fernando, moving to you, are there things that you offer that are 100% digital? And if they, I mean, how do you do that? Yes, so this basic vehicle insurance is 100% digital. And if I look back the last four years, it depended on the, on the stage of the product. So, you know, go from a pioneer to an early adopter to, say, mass market. And in the very beginning, it was about price, really. So we, we offered a very, very low price. And that was enough for these pioneers to take a chance on a new brand. Mm -hmm. And then we started noticing word of mouth and we, we encouraged word of mouth through referral programs, through customer reviews that were very obvious on the website, and we highlighted those testimonials. And then once, and then we were kind of stuck. And then we realized that to go mass market, we needed brand. Mm -hmm. And the way that we did the branding, at least in our case, was through TV and radio. And it wow. sounds a little bit old-fashioned and expensive. And the reason we were able to do so as, as a startup with limited budget was through revenue share. So we said to, to the TV station, we don't have any money to pay like Procter & Gamble for your ads. However, this is a product that could go mass market. Let's do like a JV. Let's do a revenue share agreement. So if it works for both of us, we'll both win. And we did uh, analytics to prove, et cetera, et cetera. And it worked. And, and, and therefore, the TV campaign actually generated a, a recognizable brand in Colombia. Well, that's very interesting. Uh, we'll open up to the audience in about 
sort of five minutes or so, if you like. But Sophie, just going to you, from looking at the operations, building what Fernando just shared, what is the impact being and creating an operations department, if you like, or units? How does your operations sort of team, if you like, deal with onboarding brand new mobile entrepreneurs and then helping them through the journey of actually, you know, feeling comfortable to your product? Yeah, we separated our sales team, which this is like something that we did about eight months ago that was highly effective. We separated the front end sales from like what we call like post sales, um, where we focused specifically on on onboarding and building that relationship. And post sales, one, introduces the vendor into our larger community. And so, like I said, we really like to facilitate trust. And so we help our vendors talk to each other, share learnings, what's working best, like that's also where we get a lot of our ideas from, from their chats. So, hint, hint, very effective. <laughs> but also during that onboarding process, right, there's 30 minutes that post-sale sets aside to walk them through a demo. And similar to what was just spoken about before, we have videos that are bite-sized clips that we give after, right? So we don't want to spend several 30-minute sessions, right? That's just not a good business practice. But we want you to have a face to the to our brand, somebody that you feel like you can call on and can trust. And then directly after that onboarding session, we give you clips. And then they live in the, the, the dashboard itself so that you can constantly reference back that allows us to have less touch as, as the client, you know, like uh, stays with us. And so no, that's you. how we deal with it. Yeah. And, and Neeraj, when looking at yourself, your shareholders, and actually on Venture Labs, one of them, what is the demand from the shareholders on balancing costs of doing things like massive TV adverts and, uh, and, and the rest of it and building the brand, if you like? How do you help convince your funders, your backers, that, you know, this is important, this is needed, because they want to keep pulling, I guess, in some ways, I know not us, of course, but some others might pull you toward uh, go more tech than touch. How do you balance that cost-benefit? Definitely, we're not as effective as Fernando <laughs> in ensuring that, you know, we get revenue sharing done. So there, there's not only investors, there's always a constant struggle in our mind as well, because you always want to reduce the CAC, right? And high touch comes with high cost to a large extent. So what we have done is, one, we, I think people on the board as well as people in the management understand that it's a journey. Mm -hmm. We know that there are three steps of a customer's journey, of the customer segment. The first one is obviously high touch. The second is more low touch or semi-touch as we call call center. And the third one is, you know, completely going towards tech. Now, how do you fit everything in that continuum? How quickly you can transition the customer from high touch to high tech? Obviously depends upon execution, but I guess everybody's sold into the fact that this is a journey and, you know, we have to take the customer in that journey towards high tech. Is it sort of at the start of your organization, when you started off, you were mainly heavily touch-oriented and slowly have morphed and evolved into more tech? I mean, what's that journey been like? Uh, you know, so when we started, we were a bunch of techies, so big fools, <laughs> uh, you know, <laughs> believing that tech can solve everything, right? And, and the whole app was designed in the form that the customer can just, you know, log in and, and you know, take the loan by themselves. We had a great success. Once we went live in the first week, we got one customer. Hey, right? At least you so, got one. So, so we got one. We, we knew those are the early adopters and they will take it in. It was uh, like, <laughs> <laughs> it was like, yeah. <laughs> no, no, we planted that guy. Uh, but, but anyway, so, so, you know, 
it, it did take some bit of learning to understand the customer psyche, to understand that you know high touch will be required and there will be an associated cost. And that would also mean that we'll have to fund that distribution, fund that cost. Thankfully, you know, we had good set of investors. Ami is standing there. She supported us. That's the right thing to say right now. <laughs> Absolutely. And, and, and we pulled through. Fantastic. And Fernando, when you look at your operational structure, I mean, were you initially heavily touch-oriented and then migrated to a blend? How do you balance that? How did you balance it at the start? And how are you balancing it now? And what do you think you'll do going forward? So... I had the, I guess, advantage point of my previous company being quite high or medium touch, very call center based. So when we started this new company, we forbid any telephone number for being on the page. So we forced ourselves to design a great customer experience. But, but going forward, there are some products that don't have that advantage. So we are copying a framework called the Elmer framework. It's out of Reforge. I mean, we're just copying Not that. Bugs Bunny Elmer. No, El <laughs> Elmer for now. So basically, Elmer is uh, emotions, logic, motivation, and reward. And just to summarize what, how we're using it to design new products, um, it talks about a mountain that you have to that the customer needs to climb. At some point, you will ask that customer to jump through hoops or to climb a mountain. And there's two ways that you can allow that customer to climb the mountain. One is you show the reward, you show the carrots, so that they're motivated to climb that mountain, right? What is that, that benefit? What is the discount on the product or whatever? But the other one is how do you reach out a hand and pull the customer up the mountain? And that's where, let's say, light touch comes into play. And, and in our case is, you know, when, when you know that customer is going to be like, oh, do I really have to inspect a car using photographs? then you make optional the WhatsApp. Okay. Say, hey, you know, you can always reach out to us and ask us questions on WhatsApp. Mm -hmm. And that's like, oh, okay, so there's a human being behind the scenes that I can reach out to, and that's really helped the customer climb the mountain. Excellent. So you don't use WhatsApp bots then? We are transitioning. So we start, we start you know, in, in a pilot phase, we use human beings, and then we're slowly, when, when the questions are very obvious and, and repeated, then we move to a, a bot, and then behind the, the chat bot, then you have a human for the complex questions. So Turing's being tested regularly with, with all this, which is brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Uh, Javier, from your point of view, when you look at platforms again, pulling you back to the platform agenda, um, how, are they, how are you seeing platforms really address this? Uh, we're hearing Tech in Touch is here to stay. Is this the balance, percentage blend, at different points of the journey, if you like? But from your studies and the way you looked at, maybe you went and uh, did you go back into the operating room, operations room in some of these entities? How are they doing it from your point of view? So when drivers sign into the platform the first time, for example, in Safe Boda in Uganda, they, they go through a training course that is physical. They are in a room. They are trained. So at that moment, that's when they open the account, they open a loan, and they leverage that in order to establish the relationship. Uh, so that later on through the app, they know, they feel comfortable, you know, there's an institution behind it. They, they understand, they, they trust the service. And this, the same goes for Dvara in India. They do the same thing. They partner, it's a fintech, they partner with ride-hailing companies and they put up a kiosk at the, at, in the place where the training happens. And that's when they do the initial customer onboarding and creating the relationship. Dvara exists, we are Dvara can find us this is you know there's a branch here and etc so so that is one of the key that really helps um, another one that is being done is um, 
adding a chat box, as, as you were uh, uh, explaining, Boost in Nigeria is doing that, Abalobi in South Africa is doing that, uh, and it, it works in both ways. One is to create a relationship and, and to lend a hand when they need a hand from the provider to the customer, uh, but also to create a community between the users of the same um, group of fishermen or, or um, um, mom and pop shops that are in, in the same area because they can ask questions to each other, they can give tips, they can um, uh, help each other out in, in certain ways. So those are, those are two important ways. Absolutely. Thanks. Well, I would just like to open the questions to the audience. If any, uh, I know we're monopolizing the questions over here. Are there any uh, thoughts or questions or comments you'd like to share from your experiences if you like? Hi, my name is Arun Nayar. I represent Neo Growth Credit. Uh, I think one of the points which, uh, you know, Neeraj, you made about tech and touch, not tech or touch. What we tried at our organization is this entire value chain from client acquisition to the closure of a relationship. I think you can have elements of tech and touch across the value chain. Some of the elements can be pure tech, suppose like, you know, risk underwriting, completely rule-based. And the client experience at the acquisition side can be a, a combination of I can touch. And I think that's worked beautifully for us. And we kind of segmented our population and identified the certain segments who want a lot of uh, touch yeah. in the conversation because sometimes relationship is slightly of a larger amount or the customers, you know, digital adoption is relatively low. But rather than customer segments or saying I'm either this or that, I think if you work if you work on a value chain, that has really delivered results for a company like us. By value chain, you mean the customer journey yes. through the process? Yes, absolutely. So, so uh, there are certain exposure sizes we lend to where it's all digital. I mean, that option doesn't exist, right? But there are certain segments your customer can option plan one, plan two, or plan three. Hi, uh, Noah from No Money. We, uh, we bank the unbanked. I just want to touch on something that Xavier mentioned and I think a few of the, the panelists have mentioned. How do you balance the improvements in tech and the instantaneous onboarding of your consumers with the, the necessary regulations, KYC and other things that constantly changes? As says from our, our experience that you know, we, we were able to take consumers on a lot quicker, but because you do international remittances, there's a requirement to physically KYC them. So you almost take them from a manual stage very quickly with, with automation and then you put them into another queue where that you get held up with with onboarding. So I'm just wondering how you you manage that constant innovation and regulation. One sentence about what now money is for the folks who don't know. Yeah, now money. Uh, so we essentially allow employers um, to pay their workers, blue collar workers, into an app uh, and use that app to remit to 130 plus countries alongside a card. So giving them access from no services and into multiple services. But it means taking on board uh, employees at scale. Uh, and employees at scale from multiple nationalities who require to have government IDs uh, as part of the process. Yeah, so the question is, as you heard, who'd like to take that? Go ahead. So, so I, can, I can give to answer that two examples. So going back to 2012 in, in Colombia, my previous company, there was no law accepting digital signatures and, and digital KYC. So we were the first to, as a, a lawyer, a, law, a big law firm to basically stamp of approval on our process and then we convinced a few insurance companies and basically what we we sort of interpreted a law that says that you can do some sort of equivalent functions in, in the electronic version and we just created that first version and we had a, a big law firm to say yeah this this is legal it was 
bit of a gray area. Funny thing is that five years later, then everyone started doing it. Then the other the other example is still in the in this vehicle transaction from from buyer to seller. There is a step that you have to go physically into a government office, sign and submit, right? So our innovation is that we just took took the forms, right? The original forms. We allow the customer to sign in their own home or in our office, you know, when they're signing the transaction. And then our employee is the one taking, I don't know, 12 mm-hmm. and submitting it in one go, right? From, from the customer's point of view, it's seamless and we do the, the heavy lifting. We are slightly fortunate in India. Yeah. Multiple public goods and utilities have come in or, or have been there now for a while. Aadhaar is one, uh, you know, where we can do KYC instantaneously. Uh, we have now central registry called CKYC. So you do once KYC, it is valid for next five years and you can just pull in. We now have account aggregator. So you can pull open bank statements from any of the bank. We even have eNatch where you can set uh, you know, direct debit. And most of this were built in the last four or five years. These are public goods, public rails, and, and makes life of a fintech very easy. And that is not the case in the United States. Correct. <laughs> 15 different jurisdic- jurisdictions. Yes. You know, as a company, we, we're we more focused on making sure that our vendors are compliant. So we allow them to, like, upload their licenses and um, give them ticklers now on when their licenses are expiring so that they can vend and things like that. And then we process through a provider. And so they they help us with, like, like payment regulations and things like that so that we can scale fast. Uh, but we, for us, what's most important is being able to help our vendors stay in compliant with state regulations and and allow them to have a visual, you know, that, okay, my license is, my license is running out. Like I literally cannot sell food or I cannot sell product when this happens. So um, and a lot the of license that. is the food license. The food license, The cleanliness, yes. health and safety. Yes. Driving Very important. a commercial vehicle. Correct. And your KYC for finance. That's it. Look at, right? you want to work for good finance? Amis trained me well. <laughs> Actually, I don't, right. So Javier, from your point of view, you can influence policy. You can influence governments to move. You move the mountains. What do you think? Let me step, take a step back. No, I think there is a lot of legacy regulation that hasn't been updated. So it's not only about the requirements to open an account, the KYC and the aspects that we're all familiar. There's other stuff. Of, for instance, in Kenya, when you're selling a policy, an insurance policy online, the person has to pay you as in a push payment separately. So... The guy might have money in his wallet with you. You cannot deduct the money from the from the wallet. He has to go to another app and send you money so that there's a, a, a payment established that and, and voluntary expression that he's buying, uh, buying the, the insurance. And that makes it terrible, right? The, it's super clunky, the process. So there's things like that, that that really make it complicated. I think what would be useful is that we... As, as a team, as a industry, we need to bring up and collect these issues because there's also a lot of demand from regulators to make the right changes. But when a single institution steps, you know, comes to their steps and say, hey, you should change the regulation for me, they won't listen, right? So it's, um, so it's raising the collective voice. Hello, my name is Omar. I'm actually a business partner with Fernando in, in R5. And this is a question for Xavier. 
I'm actually fascinated by the electronic rails concept and success uh, in India and how that actually helps it make it easier for many of the other companies. Have you seen any other countries beyond India that have successfully implemented this public infrastructure? And how do we influence Colombia? Well, that's the next step. <laughs> it is an aspiration to, to do more of that across the world. But the, it's not as simple to copy the same things because the architecture of the payment system is different. Essentially, in India, what you have solved for is universal accounts and universal IDs. And in an architecture that enables any provider to be able to leverage that existing identification to authenticate a customer in real time, be sure who you're speaking to and relating to, and establish a commercial relationship. Uh, to do that in the architecture of Mexico or Colombia or anywhere else, uh, it has to, it, you have to build on what it's there. And that has been a significant challenge. But Brazil is, is uh, really taking a, you know, leap steps in, in how to do that. And their latest open banking is, is really unleashing a lot of um, opportunities for fintechs to serve previously excluded people. But it's a long, it's a long issue, and we are actually working to, to, to do more of that, to help uh, replicate that kind of success in other markets. I think I'm aware of Indonesia as well, and Egypt trying to do that. Also, there's a little bit of the, it's a, it's a political will that made it happen. So that's the, that's the biggest question that we ask. So political will is what was made it happen in India, and certainly that is needed in other countries. But there's technical stuff as well. And there's the, the regulatory architecture, the laws, the, uh, the systems that are used, the, the role of the central bank, who has access to the payments. There's a lot of things that need to be aligned in a certain way. A question what, what people are thinking about. For you, Neeraj, during the pandemic, did you see a, a big push, a, a demand for digital tech interactions go up? And has that changed now? Let's put it this way. I, I don't like saying post-pandemic because that's a mindset shift, not a real thing. But go ahead. I mean, have you seen a change in how customers interact or people interact with, your, with you? Uh, so, so, yes. Uh, so, during pandemic, we did see, and, and, and we were one who were also lending at that time. So, though we have high-touch uh, environment, but we kept the lines open. And we did see a few of the customers still pulling through, you know, the early adopters who want to do it all high-tech. But, you know, as soon as the, the pandemic went away, uh, people are back to the normal usage. Uh, and we have seen the same thing in terms of uh, usage of cash. The usage of cash dramatically dropped. So much so that Roscas were getting around 40% of their payments through banking channel, which was like all-time high uh, as compared to 10 to 12%, which they generally get. And it is back again to around 15%. So, so things have what moved. What was it pre-pandemic? Is it 15%? So it's gone back to that? Yeah. Or it's, was it 20 and now it's 50? You know. so the pre-pandemic was 10, 12%. It moved to 40 and then back to 15. So there is still, still a slight still a little, little bit higher there. And same question to you. I mean, your interactions with the clients, how have they changed during, before, during, and now? So at the time the pandemic started, it, it shot up like probably all around the world. But what is interesting about what we're seeing now is fraud making people backtrack. So let me explain. So there's a lot of uh, fake uh, websites that pretend to be us and they use kind of tweaks on the brand and, and they fake some government IDs uh, that we produce and they, they defraud customers. And what we're seeing is that we're having to fight hard to get them down 
So denouncing them to the police, but they don't do anything. So it's actually much faster to uh, indicate to Facebook to actually take them down because they use the Facebook and the Instagram channels to acquire. So now we're having to fight them to shoot them down and prevent our customers from uh, reducing their trust. When I built my last fintech and uh, some failed, some succeeded, I was aspirationally looking forward to people defrauding my company because that means you arrived. <laughs> you are known, right? You're known in the industry because people are attacking you now. Well, well done. <laughs> you are you're above the radar. <laughs> hey, so, Sophie, question, same question to you as in, you know, how has it customer behavior changed during the pre-pandemic, the pandemic, and now? So pre-pandemic, actually, so we started off as a the name Good Find, it was about finding good things. So we started off as a food truck finder. And so we ended up really lucky early on building these relationships because we just wanted you to share like your location so we could be repeat customers. That was the, that was the whole thing. And we quickly learned that there also needed to be fintech tools and services, but in underbank, underserved population, there's a like distrust Sometimes I, I want to say general distrust, although like I hate I'm a lawyer, so I hate to say like only or whatever. But so a general distrust of, you know, technology, b- banks, things like that, because they're not used to being served in those capacities. And so our fintech product wasn't initially taking off as quickly as our finder product. And then the pandemic hit and you were forced to be contactless and we were their first call. Right. Because we had already been working in the community and they knew us through our through one product, right, through one entry point of our product. Now, our value proposition is very high because we have so many features that they can manage their business end to end. And we also foster community. And so we have, you know, now talking to our owners and operators is much easier and it's a it's a easier conversion Rate. So it's it's easier than ever now, but our platform is also more has more value than ever as well. So they kind of go hand in hand. Thanks for that. Yeah. Uh, to us, so the closing of this now, Javier, from your point of view, what do you know now that you wish you knew three years earlier to help these governments, policymakers, platforms you've worked with, and say, look, you know, this is what you should have been doing, or this is what you should do going forward. So our friends can take away some nuggets from, from you. And the same question goes to all of you, of course. But please start. I think what would have been useful is just to see the the amount of effort and attention that, that, that the tech and touch deserves and needs. I think a lot of us included and others have gone in without knowing and have invested a lot of effort, have invested a lot of resources pushing something that wasn't going to work. And it would have been a little bit more efficient to maybe be more smart ahead of time, uh, putting attention to that. So thank you for that. Sophie, from your point of view, what, what do you think that you know now that you wish you knew a few years ago that helps you address these challenges and keep growing? Yeah, there's nothing, there's no such thing as a pure self-serve model, right? Like I used to think, and, and, and somebody else alluded to this earlier that like technology could solve everything, right? Like you build something, it's great tech, the people are going to love it and they're going to onboard themselves and do everything themselves. And I never have to have, like my sales team is a backup because we all want to have like high ROI and low cap, you know, like from a business perspective, it's just self-service just makes a lot of sense. And so or very early on, we focused a lot on the technology itself. And like I said, like our, our first time entering with a fintech product, 
it did, didn't go gangbusters on day on day one because we weren't considering like the the touch that it that it would take to gain trust and things like that. So in any model that I build out now and in the future, even though I would like it to be more self-serve than, you know, high touch, I, I realize that in every model that I build, there's going to be some level of touch because I need to have that for my user to feel comfortable and and I want good find to be to be home for them. So Got to make it comfy. Thank you so yeah. much for sharing that. Neeraj? Yeah. Um, no, so our learning is uh, build trust first, right? And uh, what we realized was this is not a war between tech and touch. Uh, the whole concept is how much the customer trusts you. Uh, whether they reach out, reach out to you or you reach out to the customer, the more important perspective is does the customer trust you? And if they do, they are willing to actually take the pain you know, and, and, and actually jump the hoops much faster, right? And we can now clearly see if you are able to build trust, if you talk the same language, you know, if you wear the same clothes, uh, if you understand their, their perspective, things will be much easier. So we, you know, thinking that tech can solve all the problem versus we trying to understand the customer has made a whole lot of difference. Thanks for sharing that, Fernand. So three or four years ago, I, I, I would, would have loved to know that our customers were actually willing to jump through a lot of hoops in exchange for discounts. And, and the reason I say that is, is now made us realize that you can redesign your process to remove a little bit of cost, make it a little bit more high touch, and reward or actually pass that saving to the customer. And that's what makes your conversion rate stable or increase a little bit. So it's, it's, it's helped us redesign how the process acquisition process works. Thanks for sharing that. Very interesting. So I guess, you know, in conclusion, tech and touch are here to stay. We all sort of agree that. It's about that balance between the two. It's also part of the customer journey, if you like, that we shared earlier. That uh, Different points in the customer journey, the blend is going to be different of how much you uh, support hands, literally hands-on, shoe, shoe, uh, feet on street, shoe leather, knocking on doors, etc. And then as they graduate to the process, providing video clips, embedded probably in the process, have a WhatsApp channel. You never know it's a human or not, of course. A metaverse is a different universe, but anyway, uh, you know, the, there is that whole process. So here to stay, I think the people we're trying to serve need that trust building through by knowing their people. People buy from people. That's the important thing to keep remembering. And through that journey and evolution in their own mindset, you can move much more to the tech side than the touch side, then make the shareholders happy, of course. Thank you for listening, and thank you know, hopefully you found this interesting as well. So uh, thank you to the panel. Thank, thank you. God. Thank you for having us. Thanks a lot. Thank you for tuning in to FinTech for the People this past year. It's been incredibly energizing to share the stories of inclusive FinTech with you all, and I'm excited to bring you more in 2023. We'll kick off the year with a third panel from the FinTech for Inclusion Global Summit, this one on agricultural finance and how new innovations are helping to combat and mitigate climate risks. But in the meantime, happy holidays and see you all next year.